Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Living History. Thank you for all the feedback you've given us, uh, particularly about when we were coming live from the battlefields. Pete Smith and I were live in both Ypres and the Somme. Uh, It was a really uh, good podcast to do. And thanks for all the feedback you've given us about that. If you haven't listened to it, go back and check it out because it was good fun to be over there with Pete and actually walking the ground. Not doing the First World War this week, we're doing something a little bit different, a subject that's really close to my heart. And it's been 160 years since some key battles of the American Civil War. Uh, And it's a subject that particularly in Australia, I think we don't spend enough time talking about because this was a huge world event that had repercussions that echo, well, even today in modern day America. So 160 years, it's a long time ago, Um, but I wanted to have a chat about it, particularly about the Battle of Antietam, which took place in September 1862, one of the key battles of the Civil War. Joining me to talk all about it is Dale Blair. Dale, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Mate, before we get stuck into the details about the Battle of Antietam and the Civil War, just tell us your story, because obviously you're an Aussie, you're not an American, yet you have this fascination for the American Civil War. Where does that come from? Yeah, I, I, it comes from grade six, actually. I, I fell in love with a book called Heroes in Blue and Grey, which was a Walt Whitman series book, um, which was basically part of the centenary, was written as part of the centenary. And it was pretty much a boy's own book about the Civil War. You know, each chapter was about a specific battle and a, a particular general or character uh, in that battle. And, um, and I guess, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of... Um, no, no academic grounding at all, obviously, as a as a ten year old. But um, and there wasn't a lot on the Civil War, just the odd encyclopedic um, reference and whatever you saw on Western movies in the, uh, that came out of America and and some of the series that were on. And uh, and so I guess I sort of gravitated to um, having some empathy with the the Southern sort of side of things, not from the political standpoint, but just from the fact that they were so outnumbered and they fought this if you like, good fight for four years, uh, where, whereas, uh, you know, really um, they probably shouldn't have got that far. And uh, and so, yeah, so that was just uh, where I got started with the Civil War generally. And um, and Antietam speaks to that on a number of levels because it's it's the battle that the South should never have um, got out of. They, they really should have been crushed at Antietam. Uh, Lee's army should have been crushed there. And uh, it was a, a huge lost opportunity for the North. 
I'm looking forward to talking more about that. We look, we can't really talk about the civil war without addressing, you know, the very positive movements that are going on at the moment, particularly in relation to um, a changing perspective on this idea of the lost cause. And the lost cause, for those who don't know, is the suggestion that the South were not fighting about slavery, that they were fighting just for states' rights and they were fighting because the North was throwing their weight around and that the South could have won and formed its own nation and gone on to do wonderful things if not for the fact that the North just overwhelmed them with manpower and industry. Um, we're redressing that lately. People are starting to say that is a myth that grew up after the Civil War because people didn't like the idea that they'd lost the war and they wanted some way of justifying what had gone on. The modern thinking is more along the lines of the South was fighting to retain slavery and that it was a rebellion against the country that they, you know, that soldiers had sworn to fight for. Um, where do you stand on that today? Without getting too political, where do you no, stand no, on that today? Uh, look, I, I think we're, we're just in catch-up mode at the moment. And uh, and you, when you when you think about um, what has gone on in American history uh, in, around race, um, uh, it all goes back to the American Civil War and uh, and that sort of and it was a catharsis that really should have addressed it more than it did and uh, and unfortunately the the old southern leadership if you like was pretty much reinstated after the war and uh, and things were allowed to go the, the way they did with segregation and uh, and um, African Americans as second class citizens and and you really, uh, with the statues in particular, if you think about the statues that are being pulled down, well, you know, this is community speaking now about the inappropriateness of, of those statues in their communities. And yes, there's a lot of these communities that are predominantly black communities because uh, they, they live in the South and uh, and that's fair enough. It's the, that's, that's the way it goes. But I think also there's a lot of people in the South too um, who are... Um, open to this idea that, you know, um, a great wrong was done and that and that history does actually be, be redressed and uh, if they're to move on uh, with that. Obviously, you're going to have some um, unreconstructed uh, Confederates that, that don't like what's happening, but ultimately I think, you know, that the former mayor of uh, New Orleans, um, the speech he gave about the removal of the statues in... Um, in uh, New Orleans was fantastic and if anybody wants to um, really doubt what it was about from the Confederate point of view back in the 1920s etc just read the the, um, the uh, speech that was given uh, at Duke University when they um, when they put up the statue um, of the Confederate soldier at Duke and it was really all about redressing um, white power um, uh, in the in the southern states, you know. So, yeah, look, we've, we're coming um, full circle, I think. I mean, the, there's a great, uh, I think, deal of um, laxity on the part of uh, of the north and I think um, weariness too after the war in, in actually prosecuting um, uh, that new ideal, if you like, about equality. But they've sort of got there. Eventually. Yeah, it's a, it's a long journey, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's been going yeah. on for 160 yeah. years, but I mean, yeah. even longer. Um, yeah. There's a fantastic new book um, called Robert E. Lee and Me by Ty Seidel about he's a retired uh, West Point graduate, actually. So he's of the cut of the cloth that uh, that these these men of the Civil War came from, and uh, he is a proud Southerner. Um, but it's just about him again redressing that myth of the lost cause, and that's mm. a fantastic book for anyone who hasn't read it. Robert E. Lee and Me, 
um, go out and uh, check it out. It's a really good book. Um, thanks for your comments on that, Dale. We should um, move forward to what I think we commemorate on this podcast is not the politics and not the ideologies, but it's the sacrifice of the men in the front line. And when it comes to battles of the Civil War, there was not a lot more sacrificing done than at Antietam 160 years ago. Uh, before we get into the details of the battle, uh, just give us a, a very quick background on what had happened in the Civil War up to this point and how the two sides were poised before the mm. battle. Well, one of the things to remember, Antietam actually is only 16 months into the war, so it actually happens quite early on. So there's been 16 months of, uh, of fighting, and a lot has happened in that time. Uh, and Antietam is really only one of 10,000 military engagements that occurs during the Civil War. So as a Civil War, the American Civil War is, is really a bit off the charts in terms of the frenetic military activity that was going on. I should just and say from, there, when you say 10,000, you mean literally 10,000, don't you? That literally wasn't just 10, a figure no, plucked out, no, of no, the, out of thin no, air. No, no, it's over 10,000 military engagements so um, where, where people shooting in anger at one another. So, it, you know, it's it's a significant uh, a number of things, 76 pitch battles of which Antietam is one. And, of course, Antietam um, is the bloodiest day of the, the Civil War, so it holds that grim um, kind of uh, honour, if you like, uh, or place in history. But uh, from the outset of the war, from the time the first guns were fired, the South started losing territory. So it was on the back foot fighting a defensive war. By 1862, the blockade is, is pretty much in full um, full swing around, around the uh, southern ports. Uh, yes, blockade runners can go in and out, but that's increasingly becoming more difficult as more Union ships are brought into the blockade. So it's a very effective uh, strategy, the Anaconda strategy that Winfield Scott had sort of um, advocated uh, prior to the war or at the war's outset. By 1862, Nashville has fallen to the to the Union. Uh, early 1862, Nashville um, has fallen to the Union. Uh, New Orleans has fallen to the Union by mid year. Memphis has fallen along the Mississippi there as well. And the Confederacy never holds those border states. So it's never in full control. So Tennessee and uh, Virginia uh, really contested battlefield uh, or battlegrounds. Um, a third of the, those 10,000 engagements that we talked about occur in those two states. Uh, and also they, from the Confederates' point of view, that's where most uh, most of the Confederate soldiers are drawn from, or the majority uh, uh, from those two states. And um, I was going to say, oh, sorry. And uh, and then so by June of, of eighteen sixty two, you have the Shenandoah Valley has been. Um, it's been occupied by the federal forces in the Eastern Theatre. McClellan's army is on the doorstep of Richmond, uh, threatening to take over the Confederate capital. And then all of a sudden, things change for the Confederacy in the Eastern Theatre. Uh, Robert E. Lee becomes the commander after Joseph E. Johnson is wounded at the Battle of Seven Pines, and Lee immediately goes on to the offensive. Uh, he drives McClellan back uh, during the Seven Days Battle, McClellan really, it's just a, a lack of will on his part. The, uh, the Union Army, had he have had the medal, would have could have stood and uh, and um, probably stopped Lee's advance at any number of those battles and, and held on. But they don't. McClellan retreats, gives up the uh, the advantage to Lee. Lee then swings onto the offensive, moves north. Uh, Stonewall Jackson, who had conducted a very uh, impressive campaign in the Valley prior to the Seven Days Battle. Um, uh, goes into northern Virginia. 
they uh, concentrate against a reconstituted Union Army, the Army of Virginia under John Pope. They defeat that army at the Second Battle of Manassas. And now all of a sudden, that army retreats back on Washington. Uh, McClellan's army is in transit back to Washington from the peninsula. And all of a sudden, there's no federal troops that can actually oppose the Confederates in northern Virginia. And Lee decides to go on the offensive and take his army into yeah, into Maryland. So, uh, and Lee's army at that stage is not fit for an extended campaign. It's it's fought the Seven Days Battle. That's uh, Stonewall Jackson's command has fought the Valley Campaign. On top of that, uh, it's fought the Second Battle of Manassas and uh, and been hard marching all through all of those campaigns. So it's really in no condition for an extended campaign. But Lee believes that the um, the risks outweigh, um, um, you know. Of the, the risks are uh, worth uh, undertaking uh, because the gain that he might uh, extract from that um, is uh, consummate to the risk. So uh, that's uh, that's where they're at. And some of the reasons for that are, um, is that, one, it gives a chance for the Confederate uh, breadbasket, the Shenandoah Valley and other farms in, uh, in Virginia, to get some relief from the war, to actually get their crops in uh, free of um, Union interference, uh, and that's and then feed the Confederate army, etc. The other ones are more uh, uh, political. So, if the Confederates get into Maryland, there's a hope that they might uh, galvanise the Marylanders uh, in that state to to come across and uh, 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 to the Confederate cause. Uh, there's also the uh, political will of the North. There are midterm elections, uh, obviously due uh, in 1862. And if you can put pressure on the Union government or the federal government uh, by inflicting defeats on their armies, then that may have uh, there might be repercussions um, for the um, uh, for the Union. Uh, in those elections, and also it's sending a message overseas to France and Britain that the Confederacy is, in fact, a viable entity. And so uh, these are some of the things that are, uh, are um, weighing on, on uh, President Davis's mind and also Robert E. Lee's mind when they, when they go north. Um, the Union Army, of course, is in a bit of a state of flux. As I said, they've just the Army of Virginia has been defeated. McClellan's um, army is still in transit. And so Lee uh, goes into uh, Maryland and he starts to cross between the 4th of September and the 7th of September. He sets up a supply base in Frederick in, in Maryland. And he wants to capture the Union garrison at Harper's Ferry, which is now which is now cut off effectively by crossing uh, by crossing the river, the Potomac River, and so he divides his army up to um, uh, to deal with the Union forces down at Sharpsburg. Uh, sorry, not Sharpsburg, down at Harpers Ferry, and uh, he divides his army into five segments basically. So he's got a rear guard, he's got Longstreet's uh, advance moving further north into into Maryland, and he sent um, Stonewall Jackson back to Harpers Ferry, and he. Um, goes across the river there and surrounds um, Harper's Ferry. Now, fortuitously, and and here this uh, we've got to think about the, the minds of the generals, Lee has assessed that um, McClellan is risk-averse, that he cares uh, a lot about his own reputation and he won't risk um, battle and he will be slow to move. He, this proved to be the case on the peninsula and also um, Lee is banking that it will be the case in Maryland. 
On the 13th of September, a couple of conf- uh, federal soldiers had an arrest on the side of the road and they find a couple of cigars wrapped in a piece of paper. That piece of paper is Lee's special order number 191, which details his orders to the army and the positions of his army. This is, of course, taken to McClellan. Uh, McClellan, this is a, a bonanza for him. He gets his army on the move and, uh, and they uh, move quickly toward the South Mountain, uh, to the, the mountain passes where the, the Confederate rear guard is situated. Um, I think it's McClaw's division. And they hold three gaps there. It's the Foxes, Cramptons, uh, Cramptons Gap in the south, and then Fox and what's the other one? Um, forgotten what the other one's called. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, anyway, those those three mountain passes are being defended. So there's a battle in shoes and uh, the, conf- uh, the Federals push the Confederates out of those mountain passes, or at least two of them, uh, which makes the uh, Cramptons Gap um, untenable, uh, and the Confederates now start to withdraw back uh, down into the uh, into the plain toward um, toward Sharpsburg. Uh, we should mention that uh, the battle is called Sharpsburg by the South more often after the town and by the um, uh, sorry by the uh, and the North call it Antietam after the creek which runs um, to the west of the town uh, east of the town I should say. Um, so hey, Lee's I just now- wanted to. Just want to jump in there and ask about mm. that that unbelievable luck that went the towards the Union soldiers of finding that order wrapped in a couple of cigars. I mean, it seems like something that if you put that in a movie script, they would reject it as being too preposterous. Yeah, too fast. How has, this, yeah. Has, has there ever been any explanation as to how that actually occurred? Uh, look, I think there has been. It was a courier um, who was uh, or one of the officers that. Was, but I forget exactly who it was. But yeah, yeah. But it was um, one of the officers, obviously privy to, to that information. Who I don't know, just dropped out of his, his saddlebag or his. I don't know how it, it got to the ground. But uh, but yeah, it was a huge piece of luck for the for, for the Union Army and, and McClellan. And he moves with alacrity. He actually moves very quickly to 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 um, take up that advantage. Uh, Lee, of course, the thing about gonna... Lee's plans is that the thing that always strikes me about Lee's plans is. This war should have been a guerrilla war. The South was never going to win a conventional war against the North, but they didn't have to win the war per se. They just had to get to a point where the North was sick of fighting. And we, we saw mm. it in Vietnam. We've seen it in so many mm. conflicts where the smaller enemy defeats the larger one by simply making them bleed more until the larger one loses their will to keep fighting. It's funny at this stage, though, that Lee seems to be quite determined to, to wage these much more conventional um, large battles and I know in particular that the invasion of Maryland didn't sit well with his troops, many of whom in the South had signed up to defend the South and now the idea of heading north uh, into uh, and being becoming the invaders themselves was something that didn't sit well with a lot of his troops. Yeah, that's true. And uh, there's quite a bit of straggling and desertion on the part of the Confederates because they simply don't want to go into, into Maryland. And they're exhausted as well. This is the other thing that uh, those soldiers are, are pretty well exhausted. But back to your point about the guerrilla warfare, um, that to us from our 21st century and 20th century sensibilities seem like the the obvious thing. And you look to the Boer War, for instance, in which, um, uh, you know, the, the Boers fought a, a very effective um, war against the British uh, with those unconventional tactics. But Lee wasn't trained that way, and nor were the Civil War generals. Lee, in fact, uh, did not like the idea of guerrillas. Um, he did not uh, trust um, 
the guerrilla partisan rangers, etc., that were um, part of the Confederate uh, military uh, in, at that time in Virginia. Um, so, no, he, he believed in the, the ultimate battle, the uh, Cannae, that you could destroy the enemy uh, army on the field. Uh, and, of course, the repercussions of that uh, politically would be huge if you could manage to pull off a, a victory like that. But, no, it was a... All, to all intents and purposes, from Lee's point of view and probably most of the senior generals, both north and south, it was a conventional war. Um, they did, of course, have to deal with uh, guerrillas um, later in the war and or from the start of the war throughout the war, actually. so uh, And, of course, many of the guerrillas um, didn't um, cover themselves in glory uh, with some of the behaviour uh, and the way they waged war, uh, and that didn't sit well with a lot of, um, a lot of generals uh, as well, of course. Um, but back to um, to Antietam, Lee now has to concentrate his army, which he does decides to do at Sharpsburg, and he takes up a position. Now Sharpsburg's situated; it's about um, seventy miles from Harper's Ferry, and it's situated between the Potomac on the west side of the town and Antietam Creek on the east side of the town. So Lee sets his army up between those two rivers or between those two waterways, takes up a defensive position and basically awaits McClellan to come and attack him in that position. Um, it's not a strong position defensively. The ground is fairly open, undulating. There's some um, some woods uh, on the left of the position, uh, but basically the centre of the position and all the way in front of Sharpsburg, um, right across um, to just south of Sharpsburg and uh, to the river just um, to the immediate east of uh, Sharpsburg. That's pretty open ground and it, uh, and it was a good position for artillery of both sides. It was, uh, as I said, they um, had good fields of fire uh, and the battle actually became, became known as artillery hell uh, because of the effectiveness of the artillery from both sides um, uh, during the battle. Uh, and so the battle is going to uh, take place Lee just waits. McClellan turns up with six corps um, uh, and gets ready to uh, attack Lee on the 17th um, of September. And the battle opens up in the morning uh, at 5.30 in the morning uh, and, you, uh, and then it's going to rage across the Confederate front um, until uh, it, it peters out in the afternoon uh, with an attack across the, the stone bridge uh, on the right side of the Confederate line. Um, Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
the both sides uh, in this battle actually don't put all of their troops into the into the battle um, at the at the start. Lee, in fact, is still waiting for troops to come up from um, from uh, the various points of the compass that he's brought them in. So he actually starts with only twenty six thousand men available uh, in the line when those first federal attacks begin at five thirty in the morning. Uh, and so then you have uh, it's the I think the the first corps that opens the uh, opens the attack, um, and uh, it attacks through the cornfield and through the um, uh, through the what was uh, known as the West Woods and the East Woods. Uh, the Confederates are holding a position pretty much um, just south of the the West Woods, and they come forward and they meet the um, the uh, federal line uh, as it as it uh, enters the cornfield and enters the east woods. And this battle rages back and forth for two hours. It's just, you know, men getting shot down. The cornfield's about six foot high. Uh, you can only see the flags of the of the troops as they're moving through. By the time the, the battle's over, that cornfield's about an inch high uh, and just full of dead from both sides. That portion of the battle comes to a close after Hood's um, under... General Wofford, Hood's um, brigade of Hood's division, makes a counterattack and finally drives the, um, the the Union forces back and then they sit and wait for the next phase of the attack. Now, it's worth noting, Matt, there's, um, is the, the condition of both of these armies. 25% of the Union army are what we call green troops. They're nine-month men uh, who had been rushed into the army because the Union had stopped um, recruiting uh, during the, the the uh, Peninsula campaign, and they all of a sudden need more men again. So, uh, so you know, twenty five percent of this, these Union forces have never seen a major battle before, and this is a major hindrance to them marching to the battlefield, and also in the way that they conduct themselves on the battlefield. Um, so, that's uh, something to to um, uh, keep in mind. Lee, on the other hand, has got an army full of veterans. His army has fought in a number of battles now and he's got very few green troops, in fact, probably none uh, in, in his... Tra- and that is, makes a huge difference on the battlefield, that, that troops that know what they're doing, that have been under fire before, that can actually uh, handle the heat. And so that's one advantage that Lee has uh, in this battle, which uh, is probably not acknowledged enough, um, uh, I think, uh, by... Uh, a lot of scholars in terms of um, what McClellan was dealing with. Uh, that's not to excuse McClellan of, um, uh, of a lot of mistakes that he does does actually make. So then about 7.30, the 12th Corps now enters the, the fray. They repeat um, the same thing, come through the Eastwoods, through the cornfield. Stonewall Jackson's uh, about three brigades are thrown in against them and that fighting rages back and forwards uh, once again. Now, interestingly... Uh, the one corps of the twelfth, uh, sorry, the one division of the twelfth corps that isn't green uh, is uh, General Green's division, uh, ironically, uh, and they actually uh, managed to hold a position um, just east of the uh, the West Woods near the Dunkard Church, and they're holding that position while the rest of the Union forces have kind of withdrawn or fallen back to, toward um, where the northward from whence they had come. So now at at about uh, 9.30, General Sumner, with his second corps, is sent into the into the attack. He has three divisions, and the first of those is under John Sedgwick, and it is sent 
basically diagonally across the battlefield. It, it goes past Green's division on the right, and then uh, on on a, uh, so sorry, it goes past the right of John uh, of Green's division, uh, and then its um, right wing actually passes in front of the federal forces that have actually fallen back. So uh, it basically goes through this big gap in the federal line and it hits the West Woods in three lines. And, of course, this is where the Confederates are holding their position. And Sedgwick's uh, division comes across in three lines across the front of the Confederate um, defenders there. And, of course, they enfilade the, the, the division. It is cut to, cut to ribbons and effectively put out of the fight for the, for the rest of the day. Um, the other two divisions have actually been uh, there's a peculiar bit of this sort of a low uh, ridge of high ground uh, that kind of sees the other two divisions sort of diverge off down toward the sunken road, which is being held by D.H. Hill's, D.H. Hill's division. And so around about 10 o'clock, those two divisions start to attack with French's division in the lead, Israel Richardson's um, division behind it, and they attack the sunken road where D.H. Hill has got three brigades sitting this fighting rages back and forth. French's division, are nine of the ten regiments are green regiments, so they're, they're these nine-month men. They are cut to pieces, but also the casualties among D.H. Hill's men are heavy. R.H. Anderson's men are thrown into the uh, division is sent in support of D.H. Hill. Uh, Israel Richardson's division attacks. Um, that includes Thomas Marr's Irish Brigade, which has got a lovely Australian connection to it. Um, the... Um, and, and, and eventually, by about one o'clock, they, the Confederate line collapses in the, um, in the sunken road and they fall back up the, up the hill, up the ridge to where the Confederate guns are situated. And so now uh, the fighting now moves away from that position um, to what we call the Lower Bridge, which becomes famously known as Burnside's Bridge. Now, just before we get to that, Dale, I have to I have to find out what was the Australian connection you briefly uh, touched on. Yeah, yeah. So Thomas Marr was a um, uh, was a young Islander, uh, and he was sent out to Australia to Van Diemen's Land, exiled to Van Diemen's Land, uh, with a number of other young Islanders. I think there were seven in all. Uh, and he, of course, he escapes from Van Diemen's Land eventually with the aid of uh, a uh, one of the Catholic priests in the. In, in one of the local towns here in Richmond, I think. Uh, and he makes his way to America. And uh, there, of course, he uh, goes to New York, uh, gets involved there. And then when the Civil War breaks out and the Irish uh, people in New York are uh, enlisting, uh, Mar ends up becoming um, uh, the leader of the Irish Brigade, which had you know, the famous the 69th New York Zouaves and uh, that is part of their their regiment. He was known as Mar as the Sword because of uh, his eloquence um, as as a as a speaker and, and writer, and um, so yes, yeah, so that was the the, the little um, connection there. Um, he goes on. Um, I think he becomes governor of um, Michigan. I think after the war, or, or, or Minnesota, one of the the um, states in the, the north that begins with them. Uh, but anyway, a great, uh, a great story. I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. So. Um, but I interrupted you. Back to the bridge. No, no. So, so back to the bridge. So, uh, so this is about one o'clock when the Confederate position has collapsed at the, at the sunken road. Around just prior to that, Franklin's Sixth Corps has crossed over Antietam Creek and is now on that side of the river behind all the um, all the Union forces. The First Corps, the uh, 
12th Corps that have all made their attacks already, uh, and, and 2nd Corps. So it's sort of a reserve that hasn't been used, and it's now across the river. So it's threatening that it could actually um, do some damage to the Confederates on the left if the attack is renewed. Franklin, the commander, asked McClellan if he can actually attack. McClellan declines, doesn't allow him to. So the 6th Corps remains basically static. Um, then we move uh, down the 5th Corps, which is holding the centre of the Union line, but on the other side of Antietam Creek, um, opposite Middle Bridge with um, Pleasanton's Cavalry. Uh, that Corps had been banged up pretty badly on the peninsula, very good troops, but now really exhausted and uh, not in great fighting um, form. So they were being held more or less as a reserve. Uh, they were also short of a division, which had still not come up. Again, this new division gets up the next day and it was uh, entirely made up of nine-month men, so a completely green division. So it's static as well. The Fifth Corps is static. And then we have... Uh, Burnside, with the 9th Corps, is sitting opposite um, the lower bridge. Now, he had been ordered to be prepared to uh, get ready for attack at 7 o'clock in the morning, and he did that. He was ready in position to attack. He doesn't get attack orders until about 10 o'clock in the morning. By this time, the fighting is, you know... uh, has finished over on the on the far left of the Confederate line, still going over at the um, at the sunken road, and so he sends his his troops forward. The Confederates have been taken from the right of their line to send to the left of their line, so they're actually really thin on this part of the battlefield. Uh, there's 450 Georgians under Robert Toombs defending the crossing that where the bridge comes across. Uh, it's quite steep ground there, uh, lots of trees, stone walls, quite good area to defend. Uh, there's sharp shooters uh, involved in that, and they hold the uh, hold the federal uh, lines up significantly for, for, for a couple of hours until they start to run out of ammunition. They've also got artillery support that's up on the hills, that's firing down on the Union lines as well. So it's a, a sticky proposition. It's often said, and I think this is unfairly so, that that um, Burnside could have um, waded across the bridge on either side. That you know, And that may have been true, but they were getting shot up and, and stopped before they even got to the water. So um, whether it was fordable at waist level or what was a, a moot point, really, if you're not actually even getting to the water's edge. So. But finally, um, a, a brigade does uh, form in columns, it gets artillery support, and it charges across the bridge. And so about 1 o'clock at the same time, that the sunken road position has collapsed for the Confederates, so too do the uh, Union forces get across the bridge at the lower bridge. It then takes them, uh, again, It's uh, there's still Confederate troops in there, there's Confederate artillery there, uh, and now Lee is starting to try to filter more men back from the left, back to the right, to try and hold that position. So the p- Confederate position is tenuous at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Their brigades are shattered in the Westwood. They've been driven out of the sunken lane uh, or the sunken road, bloody lane, uh, and now the Union are across the um, across the creek uh, on the right-hand side of the Confederate line. The Union have also sent a division down to a place called Snavely's Ford, which should have been reconnoitred much earlier and because they had to find it and then get across it. Rodman's division, it gets across. It's a mix of um, seasoned troops 
and green troops. Uh, it gets across, and that's extending, uh, stretching the far right of the Confederate line. So it's actually sort of getting up behind the, the right rear of the Confederate position. By three o'clock, Burnside has all his troops across the, the creek and is now preparing to push forward against the, the Confederate line in that position. Now, the Confederate line is stretched. Um, it's Longstreet's command principally, but it's fairly good ground to defend here. It's, it's quite steep uh, overlooking the river, but there's lots of cornfields, there's lots of stone fields and little knolls, etc. And so whilst the Confederates are stretched and their numbers are thin, um, they are actually able to put up a fairly stiff resistance uh, here. But the battle is with Rodman's turning movement is starting to um, look fairly grim again for the Confederates. And at this point, AP Hill's division, which is marching up from Harpers Ferry, Harpers Ferry had surrendered on the on the 15th. Um, the, most of the troops had been sent up to Lee on the 16th, but AP Hill had had to stay back to obviously oversee the surrender of 14,000 uh, Union troops. And he had put his troops on the road uh, and they were marching and they arrive around about 3.30, they start to arrive just as Rodman's division is starting to threaten the the Confederate uh, right and rear. And they save the day, basically. They are able to drive back Rodman's division uh, and um, uh, and then the battle comes to a comes to a close uh, after about 4.30 or, or 5 o'clock at that point. The fighting, the fighting ceases. As I said, all up... In that day's fighting, over 23,000 casualties from both armies. So it's um, it's the bloodiest day of the, the war. Um, in that sense, as uh, as a battle, it stands with Gettysburg and the wilderness uh, for, for just for the bloodiness uh, of, of the battle. Lee actually holds position the next day. And think about this, that uh, McClellan has um, the Sixth Corps, hasn't been used, the Fifth Corps hasn't been used. He has used two-thirds of his army. So Lee has put all his men in, about 40,000. McClellan, in the end, has probably only used about 60,000 of his troops, of which a, a third, we could, oh, well, not a third, sorry, probably uh, about 20% of those that were in action were green troops, So, which is a, 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 you know, a, a huge hindering um, factor. And it's interesting how they dealt with those green troops, and I only learned about this recently, but... I mean, Civil War uh, commanders, they weren't stupid. They, they worked out. So when you had green troops, what you did was that they would generally take up the centre of your line uh, in a brigade. So if a brigade had five regiments, you would actually put your two green regiments in the centre of the, the brigade line so that your flanks were held by seasoned troops. And that would allow those troops to, if you like, um, uh, not bear the worst part of the battle if, if they um, were flanked or, or, or whatever. And so, but that becomes, that's problematic when you've got whole divisions that are made up of these uh, and whole brigades that are made up of these new troops. But, um, but the greenness of those federal troops was certainly a factor in why the, the um, uh, McClellan uh, isn't able to, to take those Confederate lines uh, in the early part of the battle, I think. So, I mean, it's the, not only the bloodiest day of the Civil War, but I, th- I think it might possibly be one of the bloodiest days in US military history. We've got six, seven, eight thousand corpses lying out in the field. We've got another 12,000 or more wounded men. How is the battle, how is it proclaimed by both sides? Because I think, you know, nothing decisive was achieved at Antietam except a lot of casualties. Uh, what the- does each side now have to say about the battle? 
So for Lee, it's, um, it, it means the end of the campaign. It's a failed campaign. So uh, whilst they held their own, and he's obviously very proud of the army for, for the way they fought, they haven't won a victory. But uh, they could say they've won a moral victory in the fact that they weren't driven into the river and they weren't um, swallowed up by the, by the Union forces or cut off as they should have been. Um, so from, a, from the soldiers' perspective, um, they were looked upon um, Antietam or Sharpsburg as as a victory from the uh, for the Union. Lee leaves the battlefield, uh, even though he holds, he stays there for a day and and uh, and sticks his jaw out defiantly. Um, he, he he does leave the battlefield in in uh, federal hands, so it's a victory for the North. Uh, Lincoln, of course, who has been hard pressed now for uh, since June with McClellan's failure on the peninsula, the defeat of. Um, the defeat of um, uh, of John Pope in Virginia, the, uh, that, and then so he's looking for a victory, and so of course Lincoln takes the opportunity uh, on the twenty second of um, July, uh, sorry, twenty second of September, after having visited the battlefield and visited McClellan uh, at um, at Sharpsburg, to issue the preliminary um, Emancipation Proclamation, and basically what that proclamation was was that it uh, signalled the North's intention to actually free uh, slaves in any Confederate-held territory uh, or Confederate states from the first of July, uh, from the first of um, January of 1863, uh, and so that is a huge game changer for the for the Civil War. It uh, it shifts the focus of the war from one of uh, maintaining the Union, preventing the dissolution of the Union. Uh, uh, to one of a much higher uh, order with the, the people's freedom uh, at stake. And so you could argue that even though f- uh, French and British intervention was always probably unlikely, it was certainly hoped for by, the, by, by certain people within the Confederacy, Confederate leaders, uh, it certainly put a, a, an end to that possibility because uh, the war, you know, the, the, the focus of the war had now changed um, to, to uh, the freedom of a people, basically. And um, so, uh, yes, it was, uh, wasn't met, uh, that proclamation wasn't met uh, uniformly with, uh, with great joy by lots of people in the North, but nonetheless, uh, Lincoln stuck to his, his guns and uh, it opened the door for that full emancipation that would occur um, after, the, after the Civil War. So it was a hugely, hugely uh, yeah, significant uh, in, in that political context. Well, it's a fascinating campaign and one that had uh, important repercussions for the rest of the Civil War. Mate, I've enjoyed our chat today. I'm looking forward. We'll do a few more in the, uh, in the, in the coming months as uh, more yeah. great anniversaries come up because I think Antietam is one of those battles that doesn't get the attention it deserves, particularly in Australia, doesn't get the attention it deserves. And um, these chapters of the Civil War are just uh, so fascinating and uh, so important to the overall story. And look, I know uh, a lot of your audience are people that are familiar with First World War battlefields and uh, and battlefields of other campaigns, Matt, and I can recommend going to Antietam as a, as a place to go, uh, as a battlefield experience. It is uh, absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's one of those... It's not cluttered with uh, monuments in the same way that Gettysburg is. Uh, that was a decision that was sort of made fairly early on, that it was seen very much as a soldier's battle uh, and that respect um, should be accorded. The other um, in, important uh, aspect uh, of, 
of the uh, of the battle was that photographs were taken and uh, Matthew Brady's photographs uh, in particular uh, of the dead um, uh, on uh, on the battlefield and they were exhibited um, uh, in the north and of course those photographs brought home to many people the reality of what war was about and um, and what so it was a, a real reality check for for many um, people. Uh, to see those photographs of, of, of dead, even though the majority of the photographs were of southern dead, it was nonetheless uh, a fairly confronting uh, a thing to, to see for people at that point in time. Well, it's a fascinating battlefield. I, When I did my big tour of the American Civil War battlefields, it was probably the highlight, walking through that cornfield and overlooking mm. the bridge, just some, you know. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Some, some dramatic sights which bring it all home, particularly when, as you say, you compare those then and now photos. But, um, Dale, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, mate, and to bring this alive. I really appreciate your enthusiasm for it, and um, it's, uh, it's something we'll, uh, we'll certainly do again. Thanks, Matt. Good on you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content.